for joining me, Pete Holterin, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Jason Fine, Athletic Director at Bates College in Maine. A member of the Division Three Management Council, Jason has great insight into how athletic programs like his at Bates are different than some higher profile institutions. It's really highly competitive students are, are doing it all in the classroom, on the field or whatever. Uh, sport they're playing, but they do it without the benefit of an athletic scholarship, which I think helps keep some of the balance and keep their eyes on academics and, and many other pursuits that student athletes are, are interested in uh, in their time in school. Now, while still operating with a multi-million dollar budget, Jason does share how resources are different at his level, which is something he appreciates. Two things for me that really kept me at Division Three. One has been the wide variety of things that I get to do. And the other thing for me is really the, the interaction with the students and coaches on a, on a daily basis that I, that I get to have. Jason also explains the relationship schools have with their governing body, the NCAA. We're a membership organization. And without the, the governance structure that includes the committees, which is made up of coaches, student athletes, ADs, faculty uh, liaisons, presidents and chancellors, then the, the organization doesn't run. When not busy with Bobcat sports, Jason spends his time not only on NCAA committees, but also working behind the scenes at the Final Four and college football playoff. In some ways, our job ruins the ability to be a fan. I will go many minutes without knowing what's going on in the game because I'm watching the scorer's table or I'm looking in the press box or I'm seeing what, what they're doing on some type of operations of what's happening. As always, make sure to check out the show notes on credentialsonly.com for links with more information about what we discuss. And please take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you access podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Bates College Athletic Director Jason Fine on Credentials Only. Here's to Bates, our alma mater, dear, proudest and fairest of her Jason, thanks so much for joining me today. I, I want to start with really just getting some of the groundwork and terminology out of the way. Can you explain the divisions within college athletics? Sure, absolutely. First, thanks for having me, Pete. I appreciate it. The divisions in college athletics, I would say there's a lot of misconceptions about uh, the division that I work in, in Division Three, which is actually the largest division amongst all the divisions. We've got about 400 and 60 institutions. Everyone's familiar, of course, with Division One, um, and actually most people are probably really only familiar with a very small group of Division One schools, the Autonomy Five or Power Five, as people call them, and maybe um, the six other than that. But, um, you know, Division uh, One, obviously, um, you know, they provide scholarships. Um, there's certainly a difference in the in the playing level between some of Division One and Division Two and Three. Not as much as some folks think. I think as you get to the other levels of Division One um, that aren't, you know, fully funded and fully scholarship, that uh, you'd be surprised at how um, how much parity there is between some of the Division Two and Division Three schools, especially at the top. Division Two is kind of a hybrid model. Um, they offer partial scholarships. Um, live kind of, uh, you know, a little bit in an in between world that I think works well for their uh, for their group. Um, and Division Three is, uh, you know, just as every bit of competitive, um, if not the same level of talent. Um, but, uh, you know, the student athletes are there really for, um, you know, they put the student before athlete is, I think, the way that a lot of folks like to describe it. Um, we don't offer athletic scholarships um, that, like I said, and with some people, especially kind of like, you know, soccer and hockey moms and dads, you know, it's like, uh you know, this, this uh, has a bad moniker to it sometimes, um, but it's really highly competitive. Students are, are doing it all in the classroom, on the field or whatever uh, sport they're playing, but, um, but they do it without the benefit of an athletic scholarship, which I think helps keep some of the balance and keep their eyes on academics and, and many other pursuits that student athletes are, are interested in uh, in their time in school. But certainly in our division, I'm, as you know, up at Bates College in Maine, um, the NESCAC is, is considered one of the top, um, you know, academic and athletic uh, conferences in the country. And I think that uh, folks would be pretty surprised at the level of competition that we have at Division Three as well. And Division Three is where you spent most of your career. What appeals to you about that level? 
It's a great question. You know, uh, I, I get asked that a lot. Um, I've spent my pretty much my entire career uh, at the Division Three level and have great friends and colleagues, um, Division One, Division Two, um, all throughout the event world. But uh, for me, that um, that drive that the student athletes have coming, in many cases, turning down at, at our, especially at our level in the NESCAC, they turn down athletic scholarships at other places to come to schools like ours where they, they feel that they can really um, pursue their academics at a high level, um, pursue other pursuits as well, whether it be social or, or you know, clubs and things like that, but still really be focused in on their sport. Um, and I think that, you know, two things for me that really kept me at division three, one has been the wide variety of things that I get to do. Um, I think that whenever I talk to my, my friends in division one, they're shocked at some of the variety of, of jobs that we've had coming up in division three. I, I often joke with folks when they say, how'd you become an AD and they want to talk to me? I say, well, they ran out of jobs to give me, you know, because you do every job in a department um, pretty much, you know, from intramurals to academic advising, compliance, sports information, marketing, you name it. Um, so, so that's one thing. And the other thing for me is really the, the interaction with the students and coaches on a, on a daily basis that I, that I get to have is it just uh, people say, you know, uh, one of my former mentors in this, in this field, well, my mentor, but he's no longer with us, unfortunately, uh, coach I had um, back in the day used to say, you know, I never, uh, I love this job because it's not going to a job. I still go to school every day. And, and to me, that's always resonated with me that um, the job keeps you young and you get to really interact with the student athletes and coaches on a daily basis. Um, and I think you get a little better chance to do that at a smaller institution and D3 schools sometimes tend to be a little bit smaller. Who was that coach and, and where did you build that relationship? Yeah, his, his name was Ira Sweet. Um, he was a former uh, athletic director and basketball coach at the College of Staten Island. Um, and, and when I first, he's one of the first people that hired me actually as a, as a kid um, and just had great advice, Would made sure to say, uh, make sure you take time for yourself. Make sure you take time for your family. Ironically, he was a single guy his entire life. Um, <laughs> and, and he always loved to take people out to lunch, tell stories. Um, and, you know, I got to hear stories about how, you know, Staten Island in the 60s um, in New York, if people aren't familiar with Staten Island, let's just, you know, I mean, it's not the most diverse place in the world, probably. And I think um, the basketball team that he coached um, at what was then Staten Island Community College and then became the College of Staten Island um, really was kind of transformative for the, for the uh, local community. Um, certainly student athletes of color were probably not the, um, the norm at that time. And a, a great guy named, named Earl Edwards, who's, a, who's become a friend, who's the AD out in um, uh, San Diego at uh, Division II school, now becoming Division I school, going through that transformation, was actually on uh, one of those teams in the 60s. So he's still a current uh, AD now. And every time I see him at an NCAA convention, um, you know, we get to trade a couple stories. And unfortunately, we lost Ira uh, about a year ago. Um, he had retired down to Florida, just a great, great guy. You mentioned how you touch everything within the athletics department, but as the director of athletics, you do oversee it all. Is it fair to call you essentially a, a CEO of what is a company within the university setting, the athletics company? You know, I think that that, um, that analogy has, has become more relevant, uh, especially the last year that we've been dealing with, with COVID and so many issues um, and a lot of the business-like problems that we've seen in, in higher education. I think there was a, uh, a misconception or an opinion, you could call it, um, amongst many faculty and, and staff that, um, you know, that what we did was not really a business, right? It was education and, and it, our students weren't customers and, and you know, they were more, more students. I think when, you know, you're talking about 70 or $75,000 a year that folks pay to send their kids there and, um, and the types of decisions that you're doing when you're dealing with multi-million dollar programs. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's fair to say um, that, that, you know, we've got 31 um, varsity teams. We've got uh, probably another uh, 25 or so club programs. Um, and then everything else, you know, that our, our department touches probably 90% of our students, faculty and staff. So yes, I think CEO is probably not out of the realm of possibility of, monikers you'd use. 
Ninety percent of the student population—that's pretty incredible. And and just that number of sports. But what struck me there is the clubs are actually in part part of what you do as the athletic department as well. That is that yeah. the norm. Um, you know, I've seen it both ways, and I've I've actually in my career had it uh, both ways. Earlier on in my career, um, uh, club sports, intramurals, recreation was was under our uh, purview. The last institution I was at for nine years, Drew University, great great place in New Jersey. Before I came to Bates, um, it was under uh, student life and student activities, which is the way it was when I came to Bates. And part of what the president and the vice president wanted to do was move that all under athletics, um, just to have consistency in the way the programs ran and some of our club sports you know hockey rugby ultimate frisbee these are you know nationally ranked programs that really uh, mimic a lot of varsity um, programs so yeah it, it's uh it's not unusual that it would be under the athletic department although i've seen it um other ways as well ours you know we've got 40 percent of our undergraduate population are involved in varsity sports we've got another 25 or 30 that are involved in club sports. And then you add in, you know, the recreational athletes and, and intramurals and things like that. And it, it, it pretty much touches everybody. You kind of glossed over everything that goes on. And I'd love to get a little bit more in the weeds on some things, both in terms of what happens within the department, because there are so many different verticals for lack of a better word, but then also what you need to do to be able to effectively oversee those roles. And some of them are highly specialized. And sure. I think one that is probably the most specialized, and you mentioned COVID going on, sports medicine. I know that was a priority for you when you got to Bates three years ago. What is that department's function within your athletic department and how do you have to interface with them and, and learn up about epidemiology, for example? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I joke with my colleagues um, and we, we do basically pretty much weekly calls either on Zoom or we've got text chains going that have really become like these therapy sessions during COVID, right? And, um, and it's things that you didn't learn in AD school, right? And certainly, you know, um, viral loads and talking with epidemiologists and MERV ratings for air filters for buildings and things like that um, are things that have, you know, jumped to the forefront of, of college athletics planning. Um, you know, other than uh, I've yet to figure out a way to handle it all well until they actually figure out a way to clone people uh, successfully and legally. So um, the first thing I think for me is, um, you know, when we did come in and assess uh, 31 programs plus sports medicine, plus club sports, all that to say, hey, how are we going to do this? We have to surround ourselves with, with great people. And I think that that's probably not the first time you've heard that is I try to surround myself with people that are smarter than me. Um, you know, I did have a background in, in sports med very briefly. Um, I was an athletic training major as an undergrad and um, realized I was in over my head with, uh, with just what uh, medical professionals or sports medicine staffs are. So um, bringing in, um, you know, the first thing was kind of lobbying for the accurate number of people because we were really understaffed when I got here. Um, and we had a great uh, athletic trainer who was uh, here for our head trainer was here for 28 years at that point and was getting ready to, to retire. And um, so when we, when we hired our, our, um, our new person, uh, we created a, that, made that an assistant athletic director position, Nick Cook, and uh, he's a terrific guy, but he, um, he's really led up the charge on um, dealing with the doctors. We have a great relationship with the Mayo Clinic. We're really lucky here, a couple of our uh, students' parents that are affiliated with them, the doctors, and they do uh, weekly or biweekly calls with our staff. Um, but it really did shift the whole, um, everything we did to overhaul that program um, and really bring everything under the, under the sports med umbrella has kind of been put on pause now. Our, our head athletic trainer now, uh, he runs the, the COVID-19 testing center. So for the last uh, eight months, he's been the director of testing. Um, and you know he speaks to the president and the vice president more than me. Uh, he, he works in my department, but he's, he's got the direct line, the bat phone. Um, and then, um, you know, and, and, and an idea that we had early in the summer or late in the spring. Um, and, and truthfully, part of this was also about preserving folks' jobs. We knew that if, if, uh, if we weren't going to have sports, um, we were going to need to try to preserve folks' uh, positions, is that our, the rest of our athletic training staff became contact tracers. So um, our associate head trainer, uh, helps with the testing and leads up the contact tracing. And then the rest of our trainers are that contact tracing staff. So if you get a positive, 
They're out there, um, you know, knocking on doors and making calls. Um, so that's really what we've done this entire year since, since last summer, and all while still rehabbing and, and running the sports medicine clinics, which we overhauled the facility, um, you know, built a new uh, sports medicine clinic in, in out of a racquetball court. We needed some more space, so we had converted a court to, um, to sports medicine clinic space. So th these, these folks have done an incredible job, and I can't uh, take credit more than the fact that I think I, I was lucky and hired the right people, but we, we talk every day um, first thing in the morning. And as you know, yesterday when we spoke, <laughs> I said 7.30 in the morning, I, I got that first call because, you know, we're just trying to stay ahead of, of, of the testing and, and the way the situation's going on the ground now is, is, is rough as we see spikes all over the country. We've been pretty lucky here in Maine, um, but it, we've not been immune to it. And, um, and we've got a great testing strategy. I mean, really aggressive testing. Everyone gets tested twice a week. Um, and, and that has really helped us to keep the cases down to a minimum. The, the thought behind that, of course, being you catch the positive before folks are symptomatic and you can isolate them. Um, and uh, and we've, we've partnered with some other uh, institutions up here um, to go in on, on, on you know, couriers to take the testing back and forth to the labs and things like that. It's worked out really, really well. Sports medicine is not unique uh, in the industry, but two facets that you do have to deal with at the university level are pretty unique. One is compliance. And again, that was something that coming to Bates was a priority, but to someone who doesn't work in university athletics, that probably doesn't register other than maybe a headline here or a headline there. But what is that compliance component for university athletics? Yeah, it's, a, <clears throat> it, it's really a, a big deal. And, and believe it or not, people think about the division one rules and things like the clearing house and compliance in that way. Division three rule book is, is actually probably twice as big as the division one rule book. Um, and uh, uh, qu quantify that though, when you say twice as big, I mean, how many pages we talk? Um, oh gosh, that's a good question. Probably like 300 pages. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big book. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, uh, they stopped actually printing it a couple of years ago to help with, with the green initiative. So now you just mostly see it online and they print out like the, the, the stuff that changes. So it's hard to actually uh, know exactly how many pages, but what we've done is, and, you know, I, I've been really involved in the governance structure of division three for the last, uh, I don't know, eight or 10 years. And, um, you know, we've looked at, at deregulating some of the rules that, you know, don't make sense anymore. And I think you've seen a lot of that in division one and it gets the press, but not so much in division three, but, you know, the rules are a little bit different and, and students still have, you know, they have four seasons to, to complete their eligibility. Um, but in division three, you can actually extend that. There's no five-year clock like there is in division one. Um, so they basically go by full-time semesters. So you could conceivably come back to school if you still have eligibility left, you know, 20 years later, and if you haven't completed your full-time semesters, you can come back. When I was, I mentioned the College of Staten Island earlier, and, and after 9-11, uh, I was working there during 9-11, um, and a, a big firefighter, civil servant, you know, police, uh, sanitation population uh, on Staten Island, a lot, of, a lot of those folks came to school at our place. So those, those kind of things are a little bit different, but the compliance piece, and we have a great um, senior associate AD, Celine Cunningham, who um, was on my really short list when I got here of folks I really wanted to try to get to come up and work, work with us. Um, and she came from uh, New Jersey. I was working at a school in New Jersey. We had done work together as well. And, and, and she is by the book. So we have lots of conversations and we really had to educate a lot of our coaches um, in some of the newer rules because the NESCAC also kind of has a, their own rule book. And, and this is something I think that folks don't know about the way compliance works in the NCAA, you can have more stringent rules than the NCAA, right? You have to, NCAA is that minimum, right? Everyone has to follow those rules. But um, when it comes to uh, our conference, it's obviously highly, you know, academic and <clears throat> ways to kind of level the playing field. There's, there's even additional rules that we follow in our conference. I'm trying to think of an example right now, which I'm struggling to. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you one. Grad students, when they kind of regulated that grad students could go back and play and finished their eligibility. Um, Division three followed up with a similar rule, um, <clears throat> but our conference, because of the lack of grad programs and some of the idea that it might not, you know, be as as equal for folks, decided that we were not going to have that rule follow the same way. So our compliance folks have to really 
um, dig into not only NCAA rules, but also the conference rules. And then you're also competing with the fact that most student athletes and their parents only know what they see on TV or on ESPN. So they assume they know the rules and, um, and, and what they want to do. So you really need somebody good, uh, you know, in division one, a lot of those folks obviously are, are, um, have JDs and our, our attorneys. And, um, you know, I think you see less of that on the division three level, but they are, um, are just super busy and super uh, capable folks. And you're right. I think the outside perception is just some of the headlines. And sometimes it seems incredibly punitive or some random, very small little thing, but ultimately what do you view the value of such stringent rules and what's the goal? Well, you know, on, on our level, it's really about preserving that student athlete experience and kind of the philosophy of what we do in Division Three. We've seen so much in the news lately. Um, well, actually, not lately because of COVID. But prior to COVID, um, you know, NIL, name, image and likeness was the big conversation. It's still big and it's going to come up um, at the NCAA convention in January. And it's an association wide thing. So it will cover Division One, Two and Three about students being able to use and, and kind of own their own name, image, and likeness in, in what they do. But, um, but the importance of, uh, you know, preserving um, the amateur status of sport, I think is, you know, something that gets lost in that shuffle, shuffle sometimes, and especially at our, at our level. So um, making sure that people are following the rules, especially where you don't have, um, you know, big time TV contracts and tons of money involved, um, you really have to rely on folks. You know, one of my favorite sayings, right, is, uh, you know, a character is what you do when no one is watching. That's, that's the way you have to be in Division Three with such a large, um, you know, swath of schools that are 460 schools, and they're very, very different. Um, some are large public institutions and commuter schools. Some are small private, you know, residential colleges. So um, it's hard to have rules that make sense for everybody. And I think that what the committee structure of the NCAA allows and the governance structure is, is for you to work within the spirit and the guidelines of those rules that, that work for your institution, but you certify that you're following them. And that's up to your president to sign off every year. And, and you know, you don't want to be an AD that has the president sign off on something. And then turns out that, uh, you know, you, you were committing some major infractions. Every institution, I think something that gets lost on folks is that every institution commits violations. I mean, sec they're secondary most of the time in nature. Um, their mistakes, their opportunities for education. And usually once you correct them, provide some education on it, there's usually no you know, penalties beyond that. It's actually, I think, looks a lot um, more strange when you're not reporting any violations because to think that you're all perfect is probably unrealistic. So I think that um, you know, those rules exist to, to help uh, you know, preserve the philosophy of what we do, especially on our level, keep, and certainly keep folks honest, but also to educate. The student in student athlete is something important you mentioned earlier. And athletic departments make it a priority to assist their athletes on the academic realm. And again, I think that's something that's very unique to working in college athletics. How do you guys approach it at Bates? And just broadly speaking, how important is it for the athletic departments to really be involved on the academic side? Yeah, I think it's, it's, I think it's hugely important. Um, I think that, you know, up until recently and recently, probably, you know, last 10 years uh, or so, you didn't really see positions for, you know, assistant ADs for student athlete services or student athlete success or, um, you know, academic support. Some have, some have combined it under a whole peak performance uh, type of thing and combine it with the physical as well. Um, but it's, it's really important. I think student athletes now are, are juggling more than ever. Um, you know, it's a, it's a chaotic world <laughs> that we're living in for sure. Um, and, um, you know, you need folks that not only understand the academic side, but understand what, what sports means to these students, right? And, and today student athletes are specializing in their sports from the time they're six years old. And we can talk for hours about whether or not that's a great thing. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it, it means so much to those students that come here. And I think what sometimes gets lost in the shuffle, um, you know, and it, it happens sometimes when a faculty member who's been around for 30 years or so, and, you know, doesn't really understand like why the sport thing is so important when they, you know, they decided to 
move a field trip or change an assignment or something like that. Um, you know, we had an example of that a couple of years ago with our football program. Um, you know, and, and if you think about it on, on our level, you know, we play, we play nine games in our league. So that's nine days out of 365. And these, these students are working hard all year round for those nine days. Um, so to have something change on a dime and go, well, you know, it's just a game. Um, what's the big deal? I think it helps to have someone on the academic side. And we, we have a great faculty liaison program as well and have them speak to each other on that level. So we have an assistant AD for student athlete services, covers um, academic advising, things like that. I think it's super, super important. Um, and, and then, you know, we also rely on our faculty uh, liaison and colleagues to kind of be our folks on the ground inside the academic side of the house to, to talk to their colleagues because they can speak on the same level, the same way athletics folks can speak on their level. So having that person in between, I think is really, really important in, in it, whether it's an assistant AD or an academic advisor, student athlete services, um, because student athletes are, are just, they're juggling so much and, and, and their, their studies are so important to them. And, you know, just like they're competing at their sport at such an early age, their parents also think about what kind of job are they gonna get? you know, and from the time they're in eighth grade. Um, so we want to make sure that we're keeping them on the right track in school. We're very, very lucky in that, um, you know, I would say the overwhelming majority of the student athletes are, so, they're self-motivated, just like our coaches. They're competitive. They don't want to lose on the field. They don't want to lose in the classroom. So um, these ideas that, you know, the road trips that I've been on, they look a lot different than the road trips I was on. <laughs> because, you know, they're on the bus, they're studying, they're in the hotel, they're studying, they're working on their papers. It's not, um, you know, kind of like what you used to see in the movies. There is a business side to this. You have budgets, you, you know, you, you don't have a bottomless pit of money to tap into. So you have to be making money and you're also having to oversee those expenditures. So when it comes to the business piece of running a division three athletics department, what are some of the aspects that might surprise people? Um, you know, well, first of all, probably that it, that there is a business aspect to it um, is probably somewhat of a surprise. Um, you know, you, you like I said, you're talking about multi-million dollar uh, budgets, um, even on the Division three level. And, um, you know, nothing uh, these days, especially now with, with COVID, but uh, even prior to that, you know, th those budgets are not really growing. Um, but the things that you have to do within that budget are constantly growing. Um, you know, I, uh, we both have a, a sports info background and I used to, um, I still talk about this with my, my friends in athletic communications. I say, you know, we keep adding things to your job but we never take anything away. The only thing that's gotten taken away from an SID's job I think is faxing, right? We don't fax yeah. anymore, <laughs> but it was like, you know, it, it was okay, you know, we added websites, you still had to write the releases, we added, uh, Facebook, you still had to have the website. And we added Twitter, you still had to have Facebook. You added Instagram, you still had, so, you know, every single thing just, just keeps getting added on. So I think it's the same thing when it comes to, you know, the costs of transportation, the costs of uniforms, the costs of reconditioning helmets, you know, hundred football helmets. Um, these are huge expenses. Um, and the budgets basically, you know, if you're lucky, they stay the same um, and they stay flat. So that puts a lot of pressure on your fundraising aspect. And I'll say this, when I first came into the into the field, the fundraising was, that was for the advancement people. That was not for the athletic director. That was not for the coaches. And that has changed 180 degrees in my time in the, in the field where it's a huge part, you know, right from the time you're interviewing for the job, are you gonna be able to go out with the president? Are you gonna be able to go out with the advancement folks and, and solicit gifts? Because we, you know, just, just in our operation here, which like I said, it's 31 varsity programs plus the, the club sports, but it's still considered small, right? Uh, com compared comparatively to some other programs, um, you know, and, and we raise a million dollars a year just to help supplement our budgets. That's before we're doing the value added things that help with trips and help with new facilities and a lot of the projects that we're trying to do. So, um, you know, the business side of it can't really be underestimated. Budgets is, you know, I remember taking um, accounting and budgeting for, but it was, it, it was uh, theater. I was, did a sports management masters and it was the, um, the theater management people and the sports management people in this class. It was kind of like accounting for dummies, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, you know, the, the thought at that time, 20, you know, plus years later that, uh, that they'd entrust us with multimillion dollar budgets. Thank goodness for Excel 
and thank goodness again for people who are smarter than us um, who help us out with that. But um, it's a it's a huge business side. Um, you, we don't have the scholarship piece on on our level at Division Three, which you know does does help a little bit. But we also um, you know I can't remember the saying, but it's uh, you know if we don't if we don't fish, we don't eat because um, you know it's it, it's not. They're not, those budgets are not getting bigger. And especially now during COVID, um, you know, we've seen tons of our colleagues um, in the field who, who are struggling and have been laid off or been furloughed. So, so mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, you know, we've been lucky to be creative and say, what other ways can we, you know, help keep people employed and not totally, you know, break the budget. And speaking of that, how many people are on your staff there? Um, we've got about, uh, I think we're up to about 80, maybe 77 with, um, with our, uh, including our assistants, assistant coaches, you know, trainers, equipment staff, everyone there. We've got 22 um, full-time head coaches for our 31 programs because some uh, coach men and women uh, in their sports. Um, but overall, when we have our full staff meetings, it's, it's a big Zoom these days. There's <laughs> like 75 boxes on the <laughs> um, And, you know, I, I don't know that we'll, uh, you know, I don't know that things are ever going to really go back to the way they were, where everybody gathered in, in big rooms. But, um, yeah, we're up, to, we're up to close to 80. You have some unique sports at Bates. And one of the unique aspects of those sports is that you're competing against schools from d1 you know you're competing mm-hmm. against boston college you've got alpine skiing nordic skiing squash do those operate differently because you're going across the different divisions you know that's a really um it's a great question and and as much as we try to make them uh, operate the the same way it's it's hard because they do compete national uh, national collegiate division um with d1 d schools so um the, the interesting thing about those programs is that if you're a primarily a division three institution, you're still bound by division three rules. So that, that puts some of your sports. And I had this with fencing at uh, when I was at drew and now here with squash and skiing, um, that puts you a little bit at a disadvantage if you don't really plan for it. Right. Because there are things that scholarship institutions can do or bigger budget schools can do. And skiing is the one that we really see it with um, because we're competing uh, you know, against some some institutions that clearly have more resources than us, um, we're, we we make up for that. I think in our in the drive of, of, of our student athletes and our coaches, and we've got a great facility uh, up at Sunday River, which is you know one of the top ski mountains here in in New England, and and that's our home course, which is terrific. Um, but it it is a little bit different. You think about it a little bit differently. Um, the other good news is you know it. it those institutions, um, they help, uh, you know, with promotion for some of our other programs, because, you know, if you, if you finish ahead of Boston college in something as Bates college, that looks good. You know, it doesn't matter <laughs> what, uh, what, what event it was, what sport it was. So I think that, um, that, that really helps. And our, our squash program and our skiing program, um, you know, compete at a really high level, um, our rowing program uh, is, 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 you know, nationally ranked each year and has been very lucky on Knockwood here to win, uh, you know, three national championships and four out of the last five. So, uh, you know, that's not a sport that, you know, the first thing you see on ESPN every night, um, but that, that success of that rowing program certainly helps all, uh, all of our other programs and student athletes that are members of those sports that you would see. So we try to, um, to, to, to give equal time and attention as much as we can. Um, but those sports that, that do compete against those other division one institutions. Yeah. It's a little bit, it's a little bit different. And, you know, you said maybe unique sports. It's been really interesting for me, you know, at, at Drew was the first time I dealt with an equestrian team. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and the only horses I saw were the cops on, you know, horseback at the parade. So, um, so when I first, and I, I, I kind of have a thing from, for me that I think helps, me get to know our coaches and student athletes. I, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell a rowing coach how to be a better rowing coach. Right. I mean that, what do I know? Um, and it's the same thing with equestrian or, or skiing, but I want to get in their world a little bit. So when I got here, you know, our rowing coach, uh, Peter Steenstra was great. He, he got me out on the water, uh, to a practice and, you know, showed me everything. And, and, and at my last institution, you know, equestrian, they kept saying, when are you going to come out and, and get on a horse? 
And I kept saying, yeah, it'll, it'll happen someday. <laughs> um, and I kept, I kept putting it off, kept putting it off. And they finally did get me on a horse at a, at a show. Um, and it was great because, again, it's another thing that kind of lets the student athletes know, you know a little bit that you're in it with them. But having those, those unique sports has, uh, has been super fun, super informative, um, and they really operate at a, at a really high level. When it comes to NCAA governance, you are very involved in this year on the Division Three Management Council. That opportunity, how valuable is it for you as personal and professional development to engage nationally on these issues? And how much do you guys really get to impact the day-to-day at institutions like Bates and, and all these other schools? You know, it's been really important for me, you know, personally, um, I think having... Um, because it helps me keep my skills fresh. I think, you know, going into those committee meetings, whether it be interpretations and legislation or, or the management council or championships, um, like I said earlier, there's so many rules and there's so many things to know that it, it, it really keeps you on top of your game so that you can speak to your compliance folks and your coaches about what's happening on the national level and they can be involved because, you know, the second part of your question there about how, you know, how involved are you in what actually goes on? What I think folks don't realize is that, you know, everybody loves to hate on the NCAA, right? It's those folks in Indianapolis and they're making these decisions and, you know, they do make decisions at the national level based on, you know, whether or not they're going to run championships and whether or not they were going to cancel championships, like for in, in the example of, of COVID, but we're a membership organization. And without the, the governance structure that includes the committees, which is made up of coaches student athletes, ADs, faculty uh, liaisons, presidents and chancellors, um, then the, the organization doesn't run. So um, most of the decisions that are made, you can trace them back to, um, you know, to the committee structure and to folks within the membership. And when you really realize that is when you get a call from somebody who decided to research it because they're very upset with a decision, right? <laughs> Whether it was a, a eligibility thing that was not up, you know, held a, a staff decision, you know, the staff at the NCAA is entrusted with making decisions based on following the rules. Um, but there's always an appeal decision and those appeals do go out to our committee structure. So, um, so there's a committee, uh, a, a part of the management council is called a subcommittee for legislative relief. And I sit on that and each week we're reviewing appeals of cases and whether it's an institution about a, a student athlete's eligibility needing a waiver something like that. So um, it's really, I encourage anybody who's, you know, certainly who's young in the profession to try to get involved and get on a sport committee, a regional advisory committee, um, learn about how we rank the teams, how we make the decisions on rules. There's rules committees. Um, management council has been amazing for me. It's kind of been a culmination um, and I'll, I'll be the chair of management council this, this coming year, starting in January. And I joke with the folks in Indianapolis that, of course, they waited for the year with a global pandemic uh, to let me be <laughs> the chair. Um, so we're doing a lot of meetings on Zoom. But part of that is the Division Three and the Division Two um, chairs of the Management Council, along with the chair of the D1 Council, sit on the Board of Governors for the year. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, that's going to be an incredible experience. But um, really, I think the, the, the main takeaway when it comes to the NCAA is that we're, we're a membership organization. And and most of those decisions really um, need to come from within the membership. And we need the membership to, to be involved um, because the worst is, you know, as we've seen in the election cycle this, this, this year, right? People, you know, complain and they say, okay, you have to vote. It's kind of the same thing. Um, you know, like people like to, you know, talk about the NCAA and the rules and, and, and complain about them, but really you can get involved on a committee and help be a part of, of that, um, you know, change you want to see, so to speak. You mentioned the College of uh, Staten Island and also Drew University, and obviously Staten Island is a New York City borough. Uh, Drew University is, is in New Jersey, but it's still pretty close to New York metro area. Bates College, Lewiston, Maine, you guys are one of the biggest employers in town. This has to be a little bit of a change for you. How do you engage with the community and take advantage of that relationship? Yeah, it's it's been a... It's been a huge change for me. Um, and as you mentioned, Drew University, small school in New Jersey, I thought at that time when I took that job um, that I was moving really far away from New York, 
I mean, it was 20, it was 25 minutes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> from the city. Uh, but it was, it was far from me because I'm, I'm a city guy and I'm used to taking the subway and putting my headphones on and keeping my nose down and, you know, minding my own business for the most part. And then you do, you come to a small town in Maine um, and, you know, they, they knew that there was a new AD coming, you know, it was in the newspaper and, um, and same thing when we hired a new football coach and when we, you know, do things like that. So engaging with the community is really, um, I thought I did that in New Jersey, but, um, and, and even in Brooklyn when I was there, um, but you really don't know what it's like until you're here. Like you don't, don't, you know, don't go to the store here uh, without making sure you're, you know, camera ready, right? People have to be able to see you <laughs> because, you know, you're going to see somebody that knows you. Um, and, and, you know, with, with everything that's gone on, uh, especially during COVID and things like that, you know, we've been interviewed a lot about, you know, what's going to happen with sports and um, we've got some great local reporters here, but, you know, you end up in the newspaper before you know it. So um, it's, it's engaging with the community is a huge piece, I think, of what we do, no matter what community we're, we're in, whether you are in a big city or a small town. Um, here, it's been great because Lewiston is, you know, the second largest city in Maine. Now, of course, growing up in New York City, that's still pretty small. Um, but for here, it's, it's a large uh, community. And um, the college, as you said, is a, is a big employer. Um, it sits right, uh, you know, in the middle of town. Um, our campus is, is an open style campus. So it's not like you have to pass through a gate and show an ID to get on campus. So the student athletes and the community are meshed in, um, you know, on a daily basis. Um, all the students, or I should say, not just the student athletes um, and the faculty and staff. So we do, we do, you know, partnerships with the middle school where our student athletes go and, and uh, you know, read with them at lunchtime and help tutor them. We do um, programs with the library where our faculty members go and do presentations at the, at the public library in town, of course, uh, you know, in person before COVID. Um, and, and we have a great partnership with the, the local schools as well. So the high school here in town, it, interestingly enough, the AD, I'll give him a shout out. His name is Jason Fuller. And we get confused all the time because we're both named Jason and we're both JF. I'm fine. He's Fuller. <laughs> um, and we've become really, uh, you know, good friends and try to help each other out when it comes to, uh, time for facilities or questions about how we're going to handle the situation. We've had interns from their sport management program come over and work with us. Um, so uh, as a matter of fact, I joked with him last week um, because they actually had some limited competition this fall and we didn't. And I was, I was just ready to go back to like the SID. I'm like, you need someone to do stats for the soccer game or announce the game. I'm, I'm ready. I'll come over and do it. <laughs> we are starving for some, some competition right now. Um, so engaging with the community is a, a big piece of, of what we do. And also it gives an opportunity for little local sponsorships. We have a great um, relationship with local uh, appliance uh, chain. And, you know, they sponsored our fan of the game for, for basketball, where you got a seat upgrade, you know, to, to sit on the couch and under their side, <laughs> have pizza from the local um, Lewiston House of Pizza delivered. So great to, to, to really engage with all the community folks. That desire to get out there and be back in events, that's a big piece of your story as well. A self-described event junkie. You have done <laughs> a ton of work outside of your day job there as an athletic director, you've worked a ton of special events. What draws you to those bigger events and what are some of the ones that you've been able to take part in? Yeah. You know, I, I joke around with, with some of my friends. I say, I'm like the Forrest Gump of, of sporting events. You know, I just kind of like look around. I go, how did I, how did I get into this? <laughs> um, considering that I'm a division three guy, you know, and, and have a day job. Um, and, and the truth is, it's been, you know, a highlight of my life. And I think, you know, um, you know one of the, the main reasons that I continue to do it, there, there's probably two main reasons. One is I, I love to be able to dip my toes in different pools um, that, and help bring that back to what I do on, on my level. So the first piece of that is, you know, of course, being part of, of big time events. As I was growing up, um, I actually didn't realize, I mean, I was in New York but that's where I grew up. So I didn't realize I was in the sports Mecca. I was in the media capital of the world. Um, and even when I went into college athletics um, as a college student and a grad student, it still didn't quite hit me until I really worked my first um, big event. And, and I'll tell you about that in a sec, but the second piece of that is, you know, what does that do for me 
is that everything I've done from the time I've worked that first event until the last one is I've been able to bring something back, just like when you go to a, a conference or a convention and you try to bring back an idea. And I think that that's helped the institutions that I've worked at and the student athletes that I've worked with and the coaches, um, because we've been able to tap into those big division one coaches and ADs who are, who are, who are able to call friends now um, and, and say, how can, how can we use that to help? So that first time, uh, you know, I, I was working at Brooklyn College and I saw an ad, uh, you know, I'm dating myself because I'm really old, um, but uh, it was the Atlanta Olympics, you know, 96. And um, anybody who remembers the NCAA uh, marketplace, which is the online place where you can look for jobs, they used to have an actual newspaper until, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, right? And they would send it out, This, you know, and, and in the back, there was an, an ad where all the job ads were, and it was a big thing about, you know, help make the, you know, the Olympics in America, this great event. And, you know, I spoke to my boss there at the time and said, you know, what do you think about this? I'd love to do this over the summer. Things are quiet, you know, and said, yeah, go for it. And, and luckily was selected. And I spent a month down in Atlanta doing, you know, event services. And of course, the second day, you know, of the games, the, uh, the bomb went off in Centennial Park. And, you know, they had worked for years to put together a manual. You know, we had an operations manual that was probably four inches thick. Um, and basically it all got thrown away. You know, it was like, how are we changing security? How are we changing lines? How are we getting on buses? Everything, was, nobody knew what was going on um, at that time. So, um, so I was able to just be thrust into this event world of, you know, figuring stuff out that I pretty much thought I had no business doing at that time. Um, which is kind of the way I've <laughs> made it, you know, my entire career. You know, wow, this is an interesting situation I didn't think I'd be in. Um, and that, that just set it off on the path there and met, met somebody there um, when I was doing that, who knew someone who ended up going, getting a job, interning with the Yankees, my, my childhood, you know, dream team, um, and then was able to, to start from there. And just, it just built and built from there. And, uh, so you mentioned Atlanta Olympics, the Yankees. What are some of the other events you've been able to participate in? Yeah, um, you know, luckily, you know, I, I, Scotty Rogers, who's a great friend of mine who you've had on a previous uh, podcast, who's, who's worked at the NCAA, now at the Cotton Bowl, um, helped get me involved with the, uh, with the Final Four and their um, media operations team, Dave Warlock and his whole crew, and, and uh, been able to do that for the last uh, – you know, seven or eight years, um, which has been super fun. And, and my, my work with the NCAA, that's kind of been able to blend there, you know, besides doing division three championships, working a lot of division one championships. Um, but especially, of course, you know, the final four is, is a real special event. And, uh, you know, Scotty had, had, had mentioned that to me prior to actually going in and, and, and getting a, a gig, working with them, what a great event it was. And then you never look back once you do that. The college football playoff as well, which it's going to look a little different this year, but um, it did reach out. It's going to be in Miami, and I'm hoping that we'll uh, be down there, and we'll see what happens with with COVID. But I I, I love uh, to work college big big time college events, like I said, because I can bring that stuff back to me. The the Yankees experience uh, for me um, has been right up there. That and the Olympics have been two things that I just never thought in my in my career that I would do. I also worked at the Salt Lake City Olympics in uh, in 2002, which at that time being an SID you can appreciate not easy to get away in, you know, January and February uh, when all the sports are going, but I, you know, I had a great, um, great people that, that worked with me and, and great supervisors when I was uh, able to go do that. And that was, you know, <laughs> again, found myself in an interesting situation because I think it was the second day I was, I was working at the, um, I think we called it the Salt Lake Ice Center, which was the old Delta Center where the, the jazz played uh, I can't remember, you know, what it, what it's called now. Um, and uh, there was a big figure skating scandal. We had figure skating and short track speed skating. That was the year of Apollo Anton Ono. He was the big short track speed skating thing. And then you had, um, you know, Michelle Kwan was was working figure skating. And it was another event that I had never done. Obviously, I didn't have figure skating in, in college or anything like that. So I, I learned a lot about the sport and a lot about how just – uh, thirsty and rabid the fans of figure skating are. I mean, incredible around the world and uh, got to know some of the media. And then the second day we had this huge scandal where the pairs from um, David Pelletier and Jamie Saleh, I remember their names from Canada, were kind of robbed of the gold medal um, and that whole uh, judging scandal. Uh, so, so next thing you knew, the next day, the entire world's media 
descended upon our arena. And again, the manual was like thrown out the window because it wasn't just the Olympics, you know, sports media, it was the world news media uh, that came. So um, I think you mentioned when we talked, you said it's amazing they've ever invited you back to an event. <laughs> Every time you go, something happens, right? Um, and then that's, that's kind of the way I felt. So that, that was a favor for me, but, uh, but I think probably, you know, just growing up a baseball fan in New York, a Yankee fan, um, working with the Yankees, uh, again, in a, in a weird Forrest Gump kind of way, because I was never really, I've never been a full-time employee of theirs, um, but to be able to, to be there and, and be asked back and say, oh, we, we really appreciate what you do um, and want you to come do it again. And, and just the stories um, that, that I've been able to take. I, 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 next to the birth of my son, I think probably the best stories of my life have been you know, working with the Yankees. You get to do these events on the inside and doing so to learn. Do you find, though, that when you go just as a fan, you're still eyes wide open and observing all the operations going on around the game? I And I would bet that other people have answered this question the same way with you, because it is in some ways our job ruins the ability to be a fan. Um, and, and you try and you go, OK, I'm just going to this game and I'm going to sit there in the stands and I'm gonna enjoy the game. And I will go minutes, I will go many minutes without knowing what's going on in the game because I'm watching the scorer's table or I'm looking in the press box or I'm seeing what, what they're doing on some type of operations of what's happening. And I'm sure this has happened with you as well. And Scotty and I you know, talk about it all the time. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, what are we without our credential? I, I often you know, think about that, right? Like, if you don't have that thing to go into the press box and do some work. And actually the first time I went to the final four, I did go as a fan. Um, and I mean, I'm not going to say I was miserable because I was enjoying the final four and really, you know, good seats and things like that. But I, I still wanted to be, I want to be in the back with the, with the media doing work. And uh, it's something that I think is in folks in our business. And that's probably why, I'm that event junkie that I love to, to go. And it's almost like you need that fix a few times a year, you know? Some rapid fire questions now on that event junkie piece. Whether it's an individual performance or an incredible ending, what's the best game you've had an opportunity to work? Oh, okay. Um, rapid fire, what I have to say, even though there's, a, there's definitely a final four answer in there, the one has to be uh, game seven, ALCS 2003, Aaron Boone, home run to win it, walk off. Um, I get goosebumps thinking about it and I got to bring him to the interview room. <laughs> he was soaked in champagne and, and shaving cream. Um, and I snapped a picture on my, I think I had like a palm trio at the time. And I said, I'll, I'll send you the picture. It's, it's him just sitting there with the magnitude of the moment like this, you know, just with his head in his hands saying, oh my God, I just hit one of the most famous home runs in baseball history. What's a bucket list event that you'd love the opportunity to work? Um, I would love, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say two. I really wanna work one more Olympics if possible. Um, and I think I would love to do like a tour de France or something like that, like a, like a foreign event that is out of this country where um, I could go and, and see how it's done there or you know, Premier League soccer, something like that. How about bucket list to attend as a fan? Um, also soccer. Um, you know, uh, the, I, I was able to attend um, probably what the closest we get in this country, which was Seattle Sounders uh, game and did the March to the Match in Seattle and just saw the fan base. And I said, I would love to go see a, a Premier League or Champions League uh, match. I close with the segment called The Set Pieces. Six questions asked to all of our guests. And I know you've done some homework for this, so eager to hear your answers. <laughs> what are podcasts and newsletters that you use to keep informed and keep learning? Um, you know, I, I get a lot of um, email newsletters and I don't read as many as I should, but every day I think in our field, um, you know, I, I am always checking the ticker and I check the D1 ticker and the D3 ticker. Um, those come every day and we have another newsletter in our, D3 World Cup called the D3 Playbook uh, that comes out just about every day um, just to keep up on what's going on out in the field and see who we need to, you know, keep in contact with, who got a job, who, who's doing something uh, really interesting. 
Um, so I, I'm always checking in on, on that in the NACTA Daily Review. And um, I've been lucky enough to be a, a moderator for, a, for an interview for Athletic Director U. Um, I love their content, it's terrific online. Um, Harvard Business Review is, is another one, but I, you know, I'm not a huge podcast guy. Uh, if somebody sends me something and they go, oh, this is great, you should listen to this, I do it, but there's not, I'm not like religious about any particular podcast. What about on social media? Who are the most valuable follows, those posts you want to make sure you're catching? Yeah, you know, um, well, during the election cycle, I, I got a lot more into the news ones and I started following uh, Andrew Yang, who I think is, is super interesting. Um, but uh, sports, you know, typical sports stuff. I mean, I, like I said, I'm a baseball junkie, so I'm always following MLB and the Yankees. Brian Hoke, uh, who, who does the Yankees beat for MLB, I follow him a lot. I also really like um, uh, Dana O'Neill and, and, and Nicole Auerbach, from, who are now at The Athletic. Um, I, was, I always like their stuff as well. What are a couple of books you'd recommend to people? Um, you know, uh, I admit I don't read as much as I should. Um, I, I do pick up books and refer to them a lot. Uh, I'll give you a couple that I, that I really like. One is called Range, and it's by a guy named David Epstein. And it, it totally changed my view of myself in this world. Um, and it's, it's, it's basically how generalists, uh, you know, triumph in a specialized world. And there's this idea of everybody having to be so specialized. Um, and me, a self-proclaimed, you know, ADD kind of kid back in the day, just thinking uh, I'm a jack of all trades and I want to do a million things. It really helped focus uh, that. And as a, as a, a leader uh, of a department with a bunch of people in it, um, Tim Scott's Radical Candor, that's a, a, a good uh, one. And another one called Difficult Conversations, um, because, you know, you're, you're faced with that. And, and I'll say I have, uh, you know, this is kind of a shameless plug for two really close uh, friends of mine, but um, to our, our women in the profession that I think this book speaks particularly to, it's called Double Down. Um, and uh, it's by uh, Trisha Clarkstone and Antoinette Stone, who I've known since they were six or seven years old. Um, but they're both uh, really in the, in the media side of things, um, amazingly successful um, entrepreneurs and, and um, media moguls. And uh, they, they wrote a book called Double Down, I think, Bet on Yourself and Succeed on Your Terms. And it's, uh, it's gotten a lot of press the last year or two. I, I would highly recommend it. Any TV shows that you're streaming? Yes, I, uh, I just, um, I've been watching Ted Lasso on Apple TV and I find it <laughs> incredibly funny. Uh, Jason Sudeikis, which I think they built, based that, uh, that show off a couple commercials he did for NBC back a, a few years ago. And it's uh, really funny. Um, just finished watching um, Ozark as well on Netflix. I love those. I'm not, I, I, I'm more of like a watch TV guy to kind of escape the day. So I might not watch like a, documentary or something really heavy, but I did just watch um, uh, a documentary called The Most Beautiful Thing, which is about um, a rowing club on the west side of Chicago um, that started you know, maybe 20 years ago to help keep kids off the street. And the guys got back together to, to it, just really a great story. It was recommended by our rowing coach um, and it's on uh, Amazon Prime now. So folks should watch it. And just last night I watched uh, The Cost of Winning on HBO about uh, about St. Francis Academy in, in Baltimore, which is a similar story with football. So um, those are a couple of good ones. I think I'd bet my house on what team is involved with this next question. <laughs> What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Yeah, and, I, and I, I, I did have to think about this one for like 40 to 60 seconds uh, before I settled on, on my favorite memory. Um, of course, yes, it has to do with the Yankees, like many of my <laughs> memories do. Um, I remember being seven or eight years old. Um, you know, I had a bedtime like most kids that age and the Yankees were playing, um, they were playing the Angels. My uh, idol as a, as a young kid before Don Mattingly came up was uh, Ron Guidry. I'm, I'm a lefty, so of course, uh, lefty pitcher there and, and, and Mattingly also a lefty. And Ron Guidry was throwing an incredible game against the Angels where he ended up striking out 18 um, angels, they, they show it on Yankee classics all the time. And my dad let me stay up late and we watched that game together until the end. Um, and it was way past my bedtime. And I remember <laughs> as soon as the game ended, Phil Rizzuto, who I 
highlight of my career was, was getting to meet him once I did go to do some uh, help out the Yankees. He, uh, he went to interview Ron Guidry on the field and my dad shut the TV off and made me go to bed before the interview was over. And I, but I, that was a, a, just a huge highlight for me. As with every episode, I close with the following question. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Um, you know, much to my dad's chagrin, who uh, would make me clean my room all the time when I was a kid, um, I do keep them. Uh, I have most of them. I don't, I didn't keep them all because there were so many, um, but the ones that are kind of special, um, you know, they hang in my office um, on, a, on a hook. <laughs> and it's always a good conversation piece, when, especially when people want to come in for informational interviews or talk about your career a little bit. You can, you know, show them some of that stuff. But I actually have a, like, like a duffel bag that has all the rest of a minute and I just don't know what to do with it, but it keeps moving with me and I have, it's gotten quite big, but I do keep them. Jason, I really appreciate your time and kind of walking us through the governance and business model for college athletics in general, but specifically at the D3 level. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Pete, thanks a lot. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. There is no question college athletics is a business, and I appreciate Jason for taking the time to shed some light on it. There are links within the show notes on credentialsonly.com to help learn even more about much of what we discussed in this episode. While you're visiting the website, sign up with your email to get notified when we have a new episode to share. And please take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you are accessing podcasts. I really appreciate Jason for taking the time to share so much about his work for this episode, and I'm grateful to you for listening. Mike Boucher edits Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.